Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. Today I have a very special guest, number theorist, Jordan Ellenberg. He is the author of a new book, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and everything else, which certainly includes poker and chess. He's also the best author of How Not To Be Wrong, something that all of us uh, poker players certainly aspire to do more of or less of. (laughs) But he's also a math Olympian and a professor of mathematics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. His recent book, Shape, relates to a lot of topics I know listeners will be interested in, from card shuffling to the math behind online security, game trees, random walks. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be fun. Yes, yes. I'm so excited. So let me just kick it off. I'm I'm going to talk about a section in your first book, How Not to Be Wrong, where you break down the expected value of the lottery. And of course, poker players are very invested in uh, expected value, or at least the good ones are. And you explain that if you do play the lotto, it's important to pick the right numbers so that you're less likely to have to share winnings if you do win. So no pretty numbers or birthdays, etc. And this technique can increase your EV to around zero in some rare cases when the jackpot is big enough. So tell me, if you had to pick two cards from the poker deck that other people are less likely to pick, what would they be? And let's just assume that we're playing this game simultaneously with all of our grid listeners. So my audience is very smart, but they're not all mathematicians. Wow. Okay. So, um, Oh, I'm going to write mine down too. So I am going to pick, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm like literally trying to engage in like some kind of random process so that, because I don't think I can do any better than that. Oh, wow. You, you really think my listeners are smart. (laughs) Nice. Good job guys. Can I say what I picked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm picking the five of clubs and the two of spades. That that was not what I picked. Good. I picked nine four. But I did that just by flipping through my email inbox and like looking at the first digit of the timestamps of emails and like using that to pick my numbers. And why did I do that? Because I feel like if I'm trying to pick what other people don't pick, on some level, anything that jumped out to me as feeling non-random would probably feel the same way to disproportionately many other people. So somehow anything it might occur to me to do to be smart, there's probably some population that would do the same thing. But I don't know. I mean, you know, it would be interesting. That's, I mean, have you done experiments like this where you ask people, try to pick the cards other people won't pick? Yes, I have. Well, well, I was also, you know, there's a couple of reasons why I did this. I mean, I sometimes do it in like an intro poker class, just as like an icebreaker. And you, but usually I just do one card and then, you know, just see what, because we, we play with suits as well and just see who wins. It's like a little icebreaker game. But I also did this because I thought that if you picked something that hasn't been taken on the grid, then maybe we can argue that that is your hand, that this is the five deuce off, suit offhand. And I think 
Oh, is that's why it's called the grid? Because it's like a literal grid of pairs of cards? Exactly. That is the idea. Yeah. And yeah, it looks like you picked one that's open. So fabulous. Yes. No. So basically, we're trying to get 169 um, interviews and we're up to like 60 or so. And the idea is that you uh, unsuited and offsuit, right? So five deuce, whatever you picked, which was like the five of clubs and the two of spades, right? That would be like a five deuce offsuit. It's not like we have to do all the combinations of five deuce that aren't offsuit. That, that would be like 1300 hands and well, maybe would increase my chances for immortality, but <laughs> it would take a long time to finish that podcast series. So yeah, that's the concept. But 169 is nice because perfect square, that's the sum of two other perfect squares. Very Pythagorean, very classical, right? Because 169 is 144 plus 25. Oh, wow. I never thought about that. That's good to know. So there's, there's more special things here. Beautiful. Yeah. And um, the idea is that it gets harder as you go along, not only because, not because poker players don't play every hand, because if you're playing heads up, then it's actually correct sometimes to play almost every hand or all hands. But more because at some point you're left with like having to find one specific hand, which is obviously more difficult, right? Yeah. And is that a skill that you need when playing poker to sort of try to, I guess, to be unanticipatable? Is that a desired mental skill? Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Up to a point, though. I think what you did with your randomization, actually, which is amazing because you're, you're not a, a poker player, but that's something that people are doing more and more because... They respect the intelligence of other players more and they don't think that they can just like figure out how to randomize to confuse people and that it's better to actually do it in a diligent mathematical way. A lot of times people have randomizers like they look at a watch and, you know, look at the second hand, things like that. But yeah, mental randomization is really hard. And I've seen studies if you ask people to choose random numbers, they'll choose numbers that end in zero way too infrequently. And numbers that end in seven way too frequently. Numbers that end in seven are really popular if you ask people to guess random numbers. Yeah, that's interesting. Seven and three, I'd imagine. And also, like when I gave nine four offsuit, it's probably not the greatest pick, honestly. I mean, I just picked it randomly. But again, it's that hand that's terrible and that you don't normally play. But it's not like the iconic seven deuce, which is literally the worst hand in poker. Or three deuce, arguably, is also uh, tied for first, I suppose, in the worst hand. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that idea that you're looking for a hand that's bad, but not bad enough that people- Wait, I think it. I figured it out because it's too far to make a straight. Is that why two seven is bad? I was exactly. trying to think about why that was. That's why, uh, that's why you're a award-winning mathematician. That's like in bowling when the two pins are on the two corners and you're like, I'm totally hosed. They're like too far apart. So in, when, I was, when I came up with this concept of 169 hands, and by the way, you get the, the wonderful five deuce off, I looked up some math on it and I came across something called the coupon uh, collectors. Yeah. I, I don't know what the theorem or something. And it was pretty complicated. There was a lot of intense math in that. But I was like, yeah, that's, that's why it becomes so difficult at the end. Right. Because when you're trying to, if you sort of ask people, think of a random number, how long is it going to take you to cover all the numbers? At first, basically, everybody's giving you something new. But then when there's only a few unused ones left, most of the time people are going to give you ones you've already had and it slows down a lot. But it's a beautiful theorem, actually. And it's, you know, if there's, if there's N numbers you're trying to cover, it's usually going to take you about N times the logarithm of N asks to get all those numbers. It's one of those things. Logarithms are great, man. And we like teach it at this as this sort of like random function in, you know, algebra two or algebra three or what have you. But, and it seems a little bit, artificial, but they come up all the time. There's like a reason it's like a celebrity function. Oh, celebrity function, like an, one that comes up all the time, I see. Exactly. 
it doesn't have anything to do with like taking the exponential of something. Like it's just, um, it comes up in these questions, like how many times do you have to ask people to give you a random number before you cover all the numbers? Exactly. That's like, there's a logarithm that just like naturally comes in. It turns out. So you told me that you didn't want to pick something using your own brain that seemed random because that other people would be thinking the same way. So in using that logic, why wouldn't you pick uh, birthdays for the lottery thinking that other people would um, not pick the birthdays because they would be too obvious? Because I know what people are like and they do pick the birthdays. <laughs> like there are empirical facts about what people do. You know, for the same reason you don't pick the one out of the fortune cookie. You may think people shouldn't pick the one out of the fortune cookie, but they do like it or not. So it's sort of different, right? If you're playing against other high stakes poker players, you're like that person is, you can kind of think that at some level of poker, everybody's approaching the problem the same way. Whereas in the lottery, people are definitely not approaching the problem the same way. And if you're computing an expected value, you're already approaching it very differently from the way the median lottery player is approaching it. What do you call it in poker? Like a fish? I read this in Nate Silver. Yes, a fish is a is considered a bad player, but it's no longer a word that people use. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm kidding. People try to like use the uh, use something like recreational player or fun player because to indicate that. A lot of times these players are just as smart, but they haven't really studied a lot of poker. I got it. I can't believe I stepped in it going out. Step, um. <laughs> oh, right. Just, just that, I mean, how you approach the question is like, it's different if you're like, I'm playing a game where I think everybody is playing the same game as me versus I'm playing a game where I think there's like some huge diversity of how people are approaching the decision problem, which I think in lottery is like more of the case. There's a huge diversity of how people play, how people think about what they're doing, like what their goals are. Like most people who play the lottery are playing to have fun and enjoy, like not, it's not their business plan. But you could pick 229, right? Because then, you know, there's very few people who are going to pick that one. <laughs> anyway, speaking of statistics and the overall literacy in the United States, your Twitter feed at JS Ellenberg has been really popular recently um, because there's so many people who are trying to really understand statistics better with like so many articles about COVID and pandemics in the past, what, I don't know how many months has it been now, 18 months. And let me read your most popular out loud. You wrote, vaccinated people may spread Delta as easily as unvaxxed is like saying sober drivers may be as likely to die in a car crash as drunk drivers. What, what does that mean? And why do you think that was so popular? Um, because I think there was this very widely circulated soundbite that said like, hey, vaccinated people are as likely to spread as unvaccinated people in this kind of new Delta variant world. And I think that's incredibly misleading because it leads people to think is like, it doesn't matter if I get vaccinated or not. Maybe it matters in terms of how sick I get, but it doesn't matter in terms of the spread of the disease. And that's wrong because what people are saying, even this is controversial, by the way, but let's posit it for the moment. What people are saying is that if you're vaccinated and if the virus gets through and you have what's called a breakthrough infection, so you're infected despite being vaccinated, then you might be just as contagious as an infected person who was unvaccinated. But of course, if you're vaccinated, you're much, much, much less likely to be in that situation. So if the whole population were vaccinated, we just wouldn't be seeing this rate of spread. I mean, nothing can be known for sure and a counterfactual, but that seems very likely. And actually, somebody pointed out to me, this was actually a, a, a better way to phrase it. So I'm just going to revise my tweet on the fly. Ready? Like, it could say, like, a sober driver can kill you just as de dead as a drunk driver. I mean, that's true. But for that to happen, the sober driver has to run into you. And that is a lot less likely to happen if the driver's sober than if the driver's drunk. So it's still good to not be drunk when you drive. Right. I can see what you're saying, how misleading that is. And, but are you, ex are, are you excited that people seem to be more interested in statistics? And do you think it's, like, uh, changed since you wrote how to be less wrong? 
Kind of. I mean, I'll say a couple of things. One, there's definitely a bit of dark humor about it among math educators who people are being like, man, like students really have a hard time understanding how exponential growth works. I wish there was like a really good example that could like help people really understand it. And then it's like the monkey's paw curls, right? It's like, oh man, now, okay, now I wish there wasn't such like a really good example to help people understand how exponential growth works. So it's true. And I was actually just talking with Tim Harford about this, who's a great UK math writer that I think despite the fact that yes, I and people like me are out there on Twitter being like, okay, this is statistically misleading. Be careful how you interpret that, blah, 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 blah. I think overall, the level of statistical and mathematical and quantitative discussion about COVID has been pretty high, higher than I would have expected. I think that people, when they need to, when they see that it's important for their everyday life, are very willing to engage in high-level quantitative reasoning. And I think the media has stepped up and talked quantitatively about COVID and made like a really impressive effort to talk about things like uncertainty and probability and confidence intervals and risk ratios and exponential growth that are like you know, kind of deep topics, I'm not saying everything's been perfect, but it's been better than I might have guessed. But then at the same time, of course, there's that minority that uh, is not really interested in engaging or, or thinking about things in that way, right? Yeah. And I think, look, I mean, you have bad actors. You always have bad actors. You know, a guy who previous living was selling $1,200 tanning beds that he says cured cancer. Obviously, he's not interested in sort of making a good faith assessment of the evidence. He has something to sell, right? So he is going to tell you stuff about vaccines that makes no sense, but he's not there to make sense. He's there to sell stuff. So can't avoid that. We can just try to sort of, I mean, to mix a metaphor a little bit, inoculate ourselves a little bit against it. But you asked, Jennifer, do do I feel like because of this crisis, people are more interested in quantitative stuff now? I would actually say, having kind of been out there writing about numbers and math and statistics for a long time now, I think people are always pretty interested in that, actually. I was surprised, too. You know, when you're a math professor or a math teacher of any kind, you spend a lot of your time talking about math to people who did not choose to be there. Let's be frank, right? People who signed up for your class because it was a requirement, like that's our normal workday. You know, when I first started writing articles and then writing books, I was a little bit like, are people going to buy this? Like, do people really want to know? But there is actually like, people are really interested in this stuff and people want to know it. So I've become like much less cynical over time, as I've seen that there's like a real public appetite for thinking about things through a quantitative lens. And you make that point in shape as well. And I I think it's, it is really encouraging for sure. Uh, Even though it does seem like in particular in poker, there's these like contrasting things going on. So in one hand, people who play poker have to learn about expected value and like how inaction is also an action. But at the same time, they have such individualistic lifestyles. So they usually don't have regular jobs that would, for instance, maybe require vaccination. Um, Sometimes they, they are a little bit isolated in the people that they talk to and the things that they read. So there's actually been a a lot of anti-vax mentality in poker, which is at once surprising. But then when you think about that other side to it, it kind of makes sense. That is a little surprising to me. Um, I wouldn't say, for instance, I wouldn't say I have observed a ton of anti-vaccine sentiment among mathematicians. There's some, but I would say less than in the general public. You think a little, so let me ask you this. I'm going to take it away from vaccines specifically. In the culture of poker, which I know nothing about, so I'm kind of, I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I am kind of fascinated to learn about this. As you said, like people like, hey, you got to understand what an expected value is to like play good poker. Are there people who are resistant to that? And they're like, math is ruining poker. Like it's about feelings. It's about like dominating the other person and like calling their bluff, blah, blah, blah. So are there people, are there 
are there people who basically resist the quantitative approach and can they be any good? Oh yeah, there's been a lot of that. In fact, that kind of argument um, traces through like the poker boom. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that it used to be very, very heated in that there were, you know, the so-called math nerds and the field players and like, they were really neck and neck. In fact, maybe the field players had- What were the second group called? Feel, feel, like feelings. Oh, feel, feel. okay. Yeah. And they were very neck and neck with that actually potentially the field players having an edge in like both the culture and even in results. But as uh, the game kind of progressed and became uh, more studied, including a, a book that I'm actually about to mention, there's The Mathematics of Poker by Bill Chen and Jared Enkinman. People started to make that shift. And recently with AI, it's gotten even more extreme. But that still doesn't change the fact that Poker is always kind of a combination of, of math and feelings. Not always, but in live poker, it almost always is because you, you are playing human versus human and usually people are not good enough at randomizing that would negate the value of psychology and feelings and reading people. Yeah, I mean, this is such a big thing, this tension. I'm only surprised when you say, oh, surprisingly, it used to be heating. It used to be heated. The only thing that's surprising to me is that you say used to. I'm surprised it's not still heated. <laughs> as it is in so many other contexts. And I mean, I feel like, look, I experienced this through being a baseball fan and baseball kind of started this quantitative transformation a little bit earlier. And like, you know, you know it from the movie Moneyball, if people have read that book or seen that movie. And I think for a long time, there was this kind of like very heated discussion. Is baseball a game people play and it's about athleticism or are you reducing it to going bloop bloop on a spreadsheet or something like that? And I think now, look, there's no serious baseball manager or owner or man or general manager who does not think quantitatively about the game and, and how to win. But we also know now that, of course, it doesn't take away the athleticism and the creativity and just the sort of sheer will to win of the sport. Like mathematics, and this is somehow the main thing in some sense I, that underlies all my books, mathematics is a human activity. We don't make things less human by recognizing their quantitative aspects, whether it's poker or whether it's baseball or whether it's chess, it's, it's still a human activity and thinking about it mathematically enriches it rather than diminishes it. I wanted to get into the, how you got into math. You were six years old and you were looking at a rectangular pattern of holes on a speaker and you noticed that there was like a six by eight grid and that it could be flipped either eight by six or six by eight. And that kind of allowed you to grasp like the, the physicality of, of math that it's all around us. How vivid is that memory? I mean, it's really vivid, although, you know, we know that how memory works. I've told that story so often over my life that I've probably replaced whatever the original memory was with whatever dramatization I've internally made of it. But, you know, absolutely this sort of this kind of insight that I had as a kid that I think at that point I knew my multiplication tables. So I knew that eight times six and six times eight were the same because they're the same in the table. But I didn't really know they were the same. Right. Until I saw it, until I was like, look, there's 48 holes in that rectangle. And it doesn't matter whether you count it as six eights or eight sixes. The number of holes just is the number of holes. That was a monumental insight. And it's something I write about in the new book that's special to math, that there is knowledge that you can create on your own, create from whole cloth, not coming from some authority, not coming from somebody who sort of told you how it was or like told you how to do it. That it is just there. And once you've built it, like nobody can argue you, you out of it. 
That's kind of amazing, actually. It's like a very powerful moment. I write I mean, at the end of the book, I write about this wonderful poem by Rita Dove. He's a former poet laureate of the United States, um, a wonderful poet who's been who's written many books. But one of her early poems is called Geometry. Who knew she wrote a poem about geometry? I found this out only while I was writing this book. And she writes about this exact feeling. She starts the poem, I prove a theorem and the house expands. She writes about this feeling of like sort of like the walls of the house blowing out, you know, metaphorically, of course, it's poetry in this moment where she understands this theorem and this power that you have when you can make your own knowledge, which is like a really rare thing that I think mathematics has to offer and is special that way. And um, interacting with mathematicians for your entire career, um, how typical is it that multiplication and grids unlock this passion for math? Because I've actually had a number of really brilliant guests on the grid, um, two in particular, Bill Chen, who wrote that book, The Math of Poker, and then Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, who recently wrote a book called The Disordered Cosmos. And both of them actually recount similar experiences. So I was like, you know, I have a four-year-old, so I'm thinking, should I like put like cloth grids all over my house, <laughs> try to get him to see this? Wow, I actually, I, I, those are both, well, I knew about uh, Prescott-Weinstein's book and have not read it yet and want to, and I didn't know about Bill Chen's book, but now, now I'm definitely going to, if I, because it'll be interesting. I, I have not met anybody who has that exact story, but I mean, I know a lot of stories like that because the ubiquity of mathematics is such that there's lots of, you know, because it's everywhere, there's lots of different places you could unexpectedly turn a corner and encounter it. And Bill's story was very similar to yours. Actually, it was four by three, I think, not six by eight. But he said, I asked him like, about when he first realized that he was intelligent or smart or like good at math, maybe. I can't remember how I phrased it. And he said it was like in second grade or something when he realized that like four by three is three by four. And, you know, that I, I don't know, like how to kind of like position the problem. And Chanda's was a little bit more general about multiplication in general. But I was like, why is multiplication so interesting to children? Is it like the first shortcut that they're learning? What is it about it that they love? It's a great question. I mean, I think that what we learn about math as children, there's there's some big jumps, there's some big conceptual leaps. And I think each one is an opportunity for somebody to be like really excited because it's truly new. So I think when you go from addition to multiplication, that's just like a higher order concept that can be really exciting. I think another one is the is the concept of a fraction, which is very famously the absolute hardest thing in elementary school math. And then as adults, we're so used to it that we sometimes don't respect how hard it is. But you're doing this amazing thing where you say, okay, what's a number up to that point in your life? You're 10 years old. What's a number? A number is the answer to a question, how many? How many things do I have? You know, I have five, I have seven, I have 12, what, whatever. I have zero. That's also a little controversial. But even with some work, you can say I have zero is the answer to how many. Now we're like, okay, there's a new kind of number, like three quarters. That's not the answer to how many, right? It's something else. It's a different kind of thing. And then we're going to tell you, oh, but by the way, that's also a number. And because it's a number, you can add it and you can multiply it and you can do all the things to it that you could do to a number, the kind of numbers you knew, the how many numbers. That's an incredible leap. And it's actually like amazing this fact that like you can treat other kinds of things like a fraction, like a proportion, the same way you treated a number, like there could be like a number of apples. And from there, then you have the leap to algebra where you're like, oh, you know what? A symbol like X, you can also treat that like a number. You can also add it and multiply it and carry out arithmetic operations on it. Once you're used to that, it's easy to forget just how deep and hard it is and to like get frustrated with a little kid and be like, you know, why don't you get it? It's like three fourths. It's like just a fraction. No, we're like asking a lot. But also at the same time, it means that there's naturally 
a lot of excitement. That excitement, that excitement that I think everybody feels when they encounter some truly deep concept that's novel to them. And, you know, in the words of Rita Dove's poem, the house expands, right? You're like, oh my God, my skull just got larger. Yeah, totally. And, you know, when you mentioned fractions, I feel like in particular, multiplying fractions must be really confusing because like you're taking, usually when you multiply things, you're used to them getting bigger. And now you have to do multiplication that makes things smaller. I feel like that that's like kind of like a brain um, twist for sure. Yeah, that's a great example that, I mean, and you're asking children to do something very, very mathematically deep when you say like, look, if you accept the laws of how math- multiplication is supposed to work in general, then you're constrained to say that multiplying by one half makes something smaller instead of making it bigger like you're used to. And the idea that you have to kind of like abandon what you're used to and sort of step away from the intuition that you've built up and be like, let's just see what the consequences are of the rules that we've devised. That's like very mathematical, but it's also very much like tightrope walking. I also couldn't help but think about the chessboard because you wrote eight by six. And of course, the chessboard is just a boring square. So unlikely to lead to any kind of multiplication revelation. But I do think that it ties into like the popularity of chess, that it's a square. Because, you know, you write a lot about draw, death, and checkers in your book, um, Shape. But, you know, we've experienced similar issues in chess, like too many draws, like even dating back to Capablanca in his creation of a game called Capablanca Chess, where he tried to create an 8 by 10 board and added a couple of new pieces. Like there is something that maybe it's because I'm so used to chess, but I do think that there's something very like iconic and visually stimulating about the symmetry of chess, that it's both very, very deep and complex, but it's also you've got this symmetrical board and, you know, with the exception of the king and the queen, everything is completely symmetrical. I think that people like that. What kind of revelations could you have seeing a square that you wouldn't see in a rectangle? So that's interesting. I mean, I think people like squares. I'm not so convinced that there couldn't be some alternate history where for historical reasons, some version of chess was played on a rectangular board. Although I have to admit that you would know better than me. I can't think of an example of a chess like that's played on a rectangular board. Is there one? Go is a square. Checkers is a square. Well, there are like variants of chess that are played on like, like I mentioned that Capablanca chess. But one that's really popular, like one that has a history and is like organic. That's a good question. What about an Othello board? I don't really play Othello, but I'm trying to visualize what that one is. No, that's square too, right? I mean, one thing I wonder about, and this, was, this, this is related to our question about sort of like optimization and does like sort of mathematical optimization like lead to a wipeout of the human factor of the game. Did chess ever have this problem? So checkers had a problem where it got really bad, where not only were there too many draws, but literally top players would play and they would like literally play the same game like 20 times in a row in a high stakes match. Does that happen in chess or is chess, there's still too much variety and too much difference in style for good players to literally play identical games usually it only happens intentionally in some way like when people are exhausted or even if they're not actively seeking a draw um, a draw doesn't bother them so their opponent plays an opening they play the same opening they've played before and it kind of just it fizzles out and I did find that section in your book extremely interesting you mentioned an 1863 world checkers championship match where all 50 games were drawn. That's insane. And then after that, of course, they had to innovate to make the game less drawlish. In chess, by the way, just uh, three years ago, we had a World Chess Championship match where all 12 games were drawn. This was between Fabiano Caruana and Magnus Carlsen. And the match then had to be broken with a rapid tiebreaker, which Magnus won quite easily. So we do have the same issue in chess. Generally, our solution 
is to make the game faster because it makes it less likely that people will play super well. I mean, not that anyone really plays perfectly, but the it, there will be even more imperfections and errors because you're making them play so fast. And it also kind of doubles as a way to make it more exciting. So that's generally the solution that chess is taking, but checkers went in a different direction. Do you think they would ever do what they do in checkers, which is like just each player has to pick an opening or they pick an opening out of a deck and like make people do it? Or would like chess players rise and revolt at being asked to start from a random opening position? I thought that was a great idea. I love the idea. But in chess, we have something a little bit like similar called Fisher 960 shuffle chess. It's called 960 or Fisher chess. And basically you shuffle the pieces in the back row. And since I guess you can't do that in checkers, that was never a potential solution. But again, that solution is really cool on one hand, but on the other hand, it, uh, it has a slight problem that it's not as symmetrical. So it, la- it lacks a little bit of like the harmony and beauty that the regular setup has. So I thought that that was a great idea. So one question I have for you, because I write, I mean, I've been obsessed with this checker story for like many, many, many years. And even like back when I was like a novelist, I put a lot of checkers in the novel because I was so obsessed with the story of Marion Tinsley, like the world's greatest, the greatest human checker player in history. Uh, and his dominance of the game and his eventual supplementation by a machine. But, you know, to a mathematician, I I was writing about checkers and to some extent chess and go in the first place because I wanted to write about trees, the geometry of trees being this kind of like very fundamental geometry that comes up in all kinds of places and other things I knew I wanted to write about in the book, like gerrymandering and et cetera, et cetera. Let me just put my cards on the table here to mix metaphors of the two games that you like. I don't play chess. I mean, I know how, but I'm not a chess player. So to me as a mathematician, it's very natural to sort of think about the game tree of chess and be like, that's in some sense, at least one aspect of like what chess is. But do serious players like think about the tree? Is that like in their mind? Like if I sort of said to somebody who was a serious chess player, like, oh yeah, chess has the structure of a tree. Would they be like, of course, or would they like be like, that's a weird way to think of it. Like, what are you talking about? It's a metaphor that's widely used in chess, especially chess, but even more in poker now, because people have these like programs that show the game tree and all the different branches of it. So definitely. But poker is so much less deterministic. It's like, it's a kind of a probabilistic tree. That's how they think of it. Well, no, you're looking at it. Well, you're looking at a tree um, using the range of hands at both players. So that oh. that's why it, even though it seems like poker is a simpler game than chess, it actually took even longer to develop these programs to, uh, you know, calculate equities and stuff because not, they're not taking the single hand. They're taking the entire range of hands that both players have. And then there's also unlimited bet sizes. It's called no limit hold'em. You can bet any bet size. They have to kind of like chunk it into a few different like typical bet sizes. That's why poker players are often talking about that. Yeah, so you became fascinated with checkers, but more the theory of it than the play, right? I, I believe... You don't even like playing games that much, but you love thinking about them. Yeah, I mean, what I love about Checkers is just like the human story, this fascinating character of Marion Tinsley. You know, he actually starts as a mathematician, so he's somebody I can I can relate to very easily. Becomes this super good chess player. He's someone who's both like terrifying to play against, but also this very humble guy, very devout. He's a minister, by the way, in addition to being a mathematician. He has this amazing line where he's like, you know, doing battle with Chinook, this computer that now is the sort of, is the champion saying like, well, you know, like we all have our programmers, like his was Jonathan Schaefer from the University of Alberta. Mine was the Lord. Like that's his, I mean, that's, so he sort of does think of himself as in some sense, like a machine, a machine with a higher programmer than us. A psychologically fascinating character who unfortunately is is deceased. So we can't, I didn't get to talk to him for this book. I mean, I never met him. I think partly because the feeling of thinking about 
a chess game or a checkers game is a little close to math for me. It's a little bit like separating work-life balance. You know what I mean? Like I sort of feel like if my mind is working this way, I'd rather be thinking about mathematics. And then, but then the other side of it, to be honest, is like psychological. I'm sort of, I think I'm inherently a very competitive person who doesn't like that about myself. So I step back from it. I mean, I remember I once, this was like long, long, long ago when I was like a teenager, I like, this is a little embarrassing, but I'll just tell the story for perpetuity anyway. Why not? Like I got in a fight with my girlfriend's mom because we were playing hearts and she shot the moon. You know how much you hate it when somebody shoots the moon against you? And I like literally yelled at her. I literally like shouted at my girlfriend's mom. And then I had to step back and be like, why was this even remotely an appropriate response? But it was because I lost and I was mad. And I think sort of at that age, even as an adolescent, I was like, oh, I've learned that when I play games and I lose, I get mad. And I don't really like being mad about something that is, doesn't, isn't worth being mad about. And so I think I've kind of stepped back from situations where I'd be in that situation. In mathematics, I think there's like a stereotype, which maybe comes from movies or sort of popular accounts, that it is this kind of competitive enterprise. I think in general... I can't say there's, I won't say there's no elements of competition, but in general, it's much more communalistic. It's much more this kind of like giant, do you ever play earth ball when you were a kid? Mm -mm. If you went to a kind of a hippie school, like as a sport where like, it's this giant ball and you all push it and they're trying to teach you like, oh, life isn't always about competition. It's about like working together to achieve a goal and like pushing this giant ball across the goal. Anyway, math is a little bit like that, right? In some sense, like, yes, like, of course you're excited if you get, if you accomplish something special and get credit for it, but fundamentally, we're all pushing the same direction. We're not pushing against each other. It's not zero sum. So I like that about about math. I never like yell at anybody. That's important to me. That's great. And I mean, of course, poker and chess have people who struggle with that. And some of them, and I, I mean, obviously, at that point, you have a, a fork in the road where you could try to overcome it and, you know, just uh, temper your emotional responses, or you can move on to another game or another endeavor. And yeah, I think that that's totally legit. It makes a lot of sense. Now, about the tree metaphor for games, do you think it's inevitable that a tree would be the metaphor for how games are structured? Or is it possible that it could be something else? No, because a tree is a metaphor for a certain kind of game. I mean, the fundamental thing that makes a tree a tree in terms of its geometry is that you can never go back. A tree, we would say, here's the mathematical way to say it. A tree has no cycles. Now, of course, a real biological tree might, right? You can imagine a branch kind of coming around and fusing back into the trunk. I think that can happen. I'm not a botanist. I feel like I've seen that. But a mathematical tree, the rule is that it doesn't have any cycles. And what that captures is that in a game, like you can never go back. Like in chess, you might return to a position that looks identical, but it's later in the game, right? I mean, there's rules to say if you sort of hit, well, I've forgotten the exact stalemate rule, but if you hit the same position three times in a row or something, like it, the game's over. So, so how far along you are in the game is like part of the position. What's a good example? I think a game that doesn't have a well-defined ending is not going to be a tree. A game where in principle, you could get trapped in an infinite cycle if the players chose to be, wouldn't be well described by a tree. So it's like a really useful metaphor for understanding the AI and even before AI, just understanding, you know, the thought process of a great chess player. Like I remember a book called Think Like a Grandmaster that I think was written in like the 60s or something. I can't remember the pub date because it's been recycled. It's like a classic, but it also used the tree as like the chess metaphor. Did you find in your research in AI and games, because you talk about Go, checkers, touch on chess, what did you find to be like the most surprising thing in your study of like deep learning and whether it be 
Alpha Zero or Alpha Go or even the, the predecessor, um, Chinook, that you discuss? I, actually, what I found surprising is here's a way you could build an AI to play a game. Ready? And I'm going to tell you like what is going to seem like a very silly way to build it. Let's say, let's say we're trying to build a machine to play chess. And let's say the machine can look like three moves ahead, which is not very much, right? It's not that it's not so hard with a modern computer to build a machine that can look three moves ahead. And you would agree, right, as a player that looking three moves ahead is not sufficient. <laughs> I guess it depends, because if I have to look at 10 different moves, then that's a lot of moves still. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, let's say two moves ahead, whatever. The point is that you can build a machine that does the following. It looks two moves ahead and then it says, okay, after that, now there's some position that I need to assess. Like, what if I do this and you do this and I do this and you do this, now I'm in some position, how am I gonna assess it? From there, you literally just do what's called a random walk. You just say, okay, from that point on, each player literally chooses at random from the legal moves they could make. So a completely unrealistic account of chess, right? You would never do this. And then do that simulation like a million times and see which player wins more. So that seems like an immensely stupid way to judge the quality of a chess position, to be like, what if starting from here, the two players just got completely wasted and each one chose a legal move completely at random for the rest of the game until somebody was checkmated. I don't know how well this works in chess, but I know that in Go, for a long time, that was the state of the art, that you just like look a couple moves ahead and then play completely random moves from there on and judge the quality of the position by how well white does how often white wins if the players play at random. That was certainly not a championship level Go player, but it was like good enough to like easily beat an average player. That to me is amazing. In some sense, that is the story of contemporary AI. And one thing I really wanted to do in this book is kind of demystify a little bit the math that goes into it. I'm not saying you could sort of sit down and write this code yourself, but the fundamental mathematical ideas are not that complicated. So I think what people should be amazed by about contemporary AI is not, wow, the ideas are like so deep and so impossible to figure out. You should be amazed by the fact that actually relatively simple ideas work so well. And I think that's still a mystery, actually. I think there's the fundamental theoretical mysteries of AI are why do these kind of simple procedures that people have devised, like the one I just told you being an example, why do they work as well as they work? We don't really have any explanation. Yeah. And the coolest thing about chess and Alpha Zero, it became better than any um, chess player in the world, including like the top engines, which who were already better than Magnus Carlsen and Gareth Kasparov. But um, chess players looked at the games and they said that they looked more human so than, than the previous computer programs. So like this method actually appeared to humans as more human, even though it was like a more advanced AI strategy. And the way that you describe the process, it like actually makes sense why that would be the case. I'm not even sure I would say it's a more advanced AI strategy. It works better. Yeah. Okay. But in some sense, the fundamental ideas are simpler. It's basically sort of some kind of like massive trial and error. And again, it comes back to geometry. There's like literally some incredibly high dimensional space of all possible strategies for playing chess. And each human player is like sort of some point in this impossibly high dimensional, unvisualizable space of all possible chess players. And basically the machine is like, wandering around this space, playing games against itself, seeing, hey, am I at a good point in this in space? No, I'm losing all the time. Maybe I better move on from here or move in some direction that makes me do a little better. So it's, it's literally just this kind of trial and error exploration. And somehow it seems to find good strategies, good location in this. I, I know it's sort of hard to visualize, 
but the sort of great mystery of geometry is that this is, and this is actually something that, that Jeffrey Hinton, who's one of the pioneers of neural nets, says. Somebody asked him in a lecture, he's like, okay, you're moving in this 14-dimensional space of strategies. 14 is very small, by the way. Like nowadays, we would do like 100, 100 billion dimensional, but let's say 14. And so they said, how do you visualize 14-dimensional space? And he said, well, you visualize three-dimensional space, and then you very loudly say 14. And that is how we do. And that, that, that is how we do, mathematicians. We think about high-dimensional space all the time. But of course, we live in three-dimensional space. We can't really visualize that. But then the incredible miracle that's so great is that this intuition that we build up with our bodies, which basically is just two and three-dimensional stuff, right? Two dimensions is our perceptual field. Three dimensions is what we live in. That's all we can really feel. That's all we can really have intuition about. And then the great miracle is that that intuition actually works really well for these kind of abstract, ultra high dimensional spaces that we can define mathematically and work with computationally, but can't see. It really is quite astonishing. And to answer your question, I have not seen the games, but I heard that the games from the first few minutes of AlphaZero playing each itself were just like, like what you mentioned, uh, the same thing, like completely random. And that it, it was, it's just fascinating to see the progression as they, it started playing better and better and ultimately becoming like the best chess player in history. Yeah, I would love, I would, I would actually, and I don't, maybe this has been done and I just didn't see it, but it would be fascinating to me to be like, just take snapshots of the games played at the very beginning and then this far of the way and this far of the way and just ask, you know, somebody who, let's say somebody who teaches chess, I don't know if you teach, but like to like look at those games and be like, to what extent does this recapitulate the way that humans learn chess? Is this kind of not very good? version look like a beginner human chess player or is it approaching good play through a completely different path? I mean, one thing I should say, you know, that we call these things neural nets because the original people who devised the concept back in the 50s were trying to kind of do something that was like imitating the way neurons work. But I don't think we really think now that a modern neural net is very much like what people do. That it ends up in a human-like place is pretty interesting, but I don't think people seriously believe that its mechanism is human-like. No, I think that it's more, it was very comforting to the chess community that I think when this happened a couple of years ago, when AlphaZero released these games, I think it was three years ago, two years ago, it was very comforting that the games seemed more human-like. Um, it was exciting to people. It was like, as you mentioned earlier, math and science advancing in a way that made people feel humanity was being recognized rather than it becoming like soulless or drawlish. Uh, that was uh, that was very exciting to people. And I, I really love the quote in your book where you talk about how chess and checkers and go and poker are still alive, even if AI can top them. You write that the extent that we're personally present in our game playing, it's by virtue of our imperfections. We feel something when our own imperfections scrape up against the imperfections of another. That's really lovely. Thank you. It's one of my favorite lines. I'm always like super happy when somebody likes the same ones that I like. But that was one of my writing days where I'm typing and I'm typing and I'm like, nailed it. I nailed the last line of that section. It was very, I'm sorry. I should not like pat myself on the back like that in public, but. No, I feel good. I'm happy that I picked out something that you really like. And you should, you should feel happy that I think it resonates with a chess and poker player because I think you really got it that a lot of chess players really do not like playing computer programs. It's just not interesting because, of course, they're going to lose all the time. But even if you, like, program the computer to, like, make mistakes or something, it's, it's just, like, kind of awkward. It doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel the same way. So, yeah, I, I thought that was, was really powerful. I mean, actually, you know, one world we, did, we don't live in, and I wonder what you think about this, because you said, like, well, people were glad it played in a way that recognizably felt like 
something like the way humans play and didn't seem like soulless. But a third option, which I think has not happened, would be what if it played and it won a lot, but it played in some like alien way. So you were like, oh, okay, I recognize I'm like playing against something that feels like it has a style, but the style is completely alien to anything I've ever encountered. How do you think people in the community would have responded to that? I would say that that was the previous computer programs more. Oh, that was why I felt like it was so refreshing um, because it felt like, well, I guess the previous computer programs, which we still use, I mean, they're fantastic. Uh, more, they were more like the traditional programs that use like more of like a brute force approach to playing the best chess possible, which I guess would have been similar to like the checkers program to nuke, right? Right. Um, and they're still fantastic. They still beat all the best players in the world. But the one thing that they often got caught in was these like circles where they would just do like a three move repetition. And Alpha Zero, I guess, figured a way out of those circles. Like there were moments where like Stockfish would think like, oh, you should go for the three move draw repetition because there's no better path here. Whereas somehow Alpha Zero would often avoid those and look for, look for wins. And not, because of that played more aggressively, which felt more human because there was like a lot of risk and aggression. Yeah, it's interesting because I think you see these kind of automated language generation programs, which I'm also really interested in, which are built on the same kind of neural net architecture that AlphaZero is. They do get caught in these loops, actually. Like one way that they're not human is that they're trying to, so to speak, think of the next thing that you might say, and they will sometimes get caught in a loop that a human would never get caught in. You can see this, by the way. Do you ever do this? Do you ever like just hit the... Um, autofill, like you're writing a text message and you're like, what would happen if I just like hit autofill next word, like again and again and again. And if you do it like a hundred times, it will often like get caught in a loop like that. There's some kind of global picture that at the moment, these devices mostly don't have. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to ask you actually about your writing process as I'm sure it doesn't involve neural nets. Does it feel similar? when you're having a great writing day to having a great math day or thinking about math? That's a good question. I would say, no, it feels totally dissimilar. I feel like having a great math day, look, math is like a situation of constant confusion and constant obstacles. And you sort of take one step and there's an obstacle. And the only way I can describe it is that a great math day, it's not a day where you don't get stuck and it's not a day where you don't feel like there's obstacles. It's a day where every obstacle that comes up, you just have a feeling like, okay, I'm going to go over this. And the next one that comes, I'm going to go over this. You kind of feel like you're like a, like a tractor with like big caterpillar wheels that may indeed be going over very bumpy terrain, but whatever it is, you're going to feel the bump, but you're just going to go over it. And you have so much momentum that you can't really be stopped. Whereas on a normal math day, you're just like, you go to, you'll get stuck. And then you're like, okay, out of ideas, I'm stuck. Maybe I'll think of some way around this tomorrow. Writing is, writing is pretty different because the truth of the matter is writing, you kind of always can get your word count in for the day. And the words might not be great, but you know you can go back and fix them later. And at least for me, I feel like you can't be stuck in the same way that you can be in math. In math, if you sort of can't figure out your way past the obstacle, you just can't proceed. So the processes like feel pretty different to me as somebody who does both. And who are your favorite writers that you use for inspiration as your writing is, is literary as you went to uh, college for writing as well, right? Yeah. Before I went to get my PhD in math, I did a year long master's degree at Johns Hopkins, which was great. So I always like plug the Johns Hopkins writing seminars because it's like one year long. It's fully funded. It's like a great way to sort of like get a sense of who you are as a writer. 
without like necessarily having to give your whole life over to it, which obviously I did not. So one thing is I got to say when I'm writing, then I don't read people who I, I feel like I copy too much. When I'm writing, I don't read anybody else's like popular math books. I read, I, I read, but I read stuff that's like totally different from like what I'm working on because otherwise it gets in my fingers and I feel like I'm copying somebody else's style. But it's what's true is that, yeah, I was training to be a novelist and I was interested in writing novels. And I think that it's related to that, that my style of writing about math is definitely a narrative storytelling style. I don't really think of what I'm doing as explaining. I think of what I'm doing as telling a story that has mathematical content in it. And the explanation just kind of comes along with the story. I mean, let me make a metaphor. Like if you're like make, directing a movie that has like some kind of complicated like time travel multiverse plot, like, yes, I just finished watching Loki with my kid. Then inevitably you are gonna have to explain like the sort of somewhat complicated rules and structure of this scientific, of this sort of science fictional world you've set up. But you don't sort of stop and explain it. The explanation sort of comes along as part of the story. You see the things that happen and seeing the things that happen is the explanation. I think that's like kind of the way I write. Like I always want it to be embedded in a, in a story. And that's probably what comes from my fiction writing days. Yeah, I mean, I love your writing style. I think you're, you do a good job of inserting humor in places, especially because your, your work is dense. Your, your books are on the longer side and they have so much in them. But you're, you do a really good job of kind of like you know, some books, like you feel like the first chapter is like amazing. And then as it goes on, it's kind of like a little bit of like a repetition. I feel that sometimes, whereas yours is the opposite of that. It really feels like everything is new, which is great. But it also uh, means that the reader does do a lot of work. And you insert these like kind of like jokes and moments of levity really well. I don't know how to write without telling jokes. I didn't know how to be a novelist without putting in jokes. I don't know how to write about math without telling jokes. I don't know how to teach a course without telling jokes. In fact, it's funny you use the word levity because I remember once when I was a trainee teacher, I was in grad school. You know, you have to meet with the senior faculty who have observed your teaching to like, they tell you how you're doing. And my respondent was this like very door older senior German mathematician who must have been in his 70s. And we kind of sat down and he was like, Jordan, I thought your lecture was very clear, but too much levity. That was like literally his criticism of my own. So I've always had a levity problem from the very beginning, apparently. You know, one thing that I think people don't, I think the structure of a joke, look, here's the thing I think people don't know, that it would be very normal for us in math to talk about the punchline of a proof. We talk about that all the time, that the way we think about what makes a proof work is that there's a snap of the unexpected, usually near the end. It functions structurally like a lot like a joke. So I think that comes very, uh, I think that comes very naturally to us. That in a way does feel like what we do when we're being mathematicians. I like that, the snap, like a punchline at the end. I really like the chapter in your first book about you should miss more flights. Actually, I think that's how I originally found out about your book. Somebody told me about that chapter because I'm a, a total nit, as we say in poker, when it comes to flights, like, God, I, I get there really early, but that's okay. I, I, I'm all right. But you break down how optimization usually means that you have to create some risk of failure or of missing your flight, as, as you explain. And I think this is so pertinent to poker because in poker, it's really true that you know, you should lose more totally embarrassing hands because it shows that you're being aggressive and taking kind of like the shots that an aggressive player would take. And I don't even mean it like psychologically that it means you're in the right process. I also mean like literally you should be bluffing on rivers and getting called and you might be like embarrassed in the moment because people see you lose a big pot, but it was still the correct play. 
So actually, if you go over your like recent poker hands and you don't have a lot of moments like that, it probably means you're not that you're playing great and picking all the right spots to bluff, but that you're not doing it enough. So how do you make this type of thought process, besides writing your books, more intuitive to non-mathematicians? Well, the truth is, I think that is a great example, this idea that optimizing doesn't mean reducing to zero some kind of unfortunate outcome because the cost of reducing that to zero would just be too high. That's a perfect example of like a very mathematical idea. But actually, it's something that I think people do intuitively understand, even if they don't set it up formally mathematically. Like, I think people understand if you run a candy store, you don't want it to have zero shoplifters because what, what would it take to actually do that, to actually be like, for the next 20 years, nobody's going to steal candy from my store. Does it mean that like you search every, you do a body cavity search of like every kid who comes in, like when they leave, like, no, you're obviously not going to do that. That would accomplish the goal, but it would cost you much more, right? You would go out of business. It's certainly in my work life, right? When I work with PhD students, I tell them all the time, if every problem you try to solve, you succeed, you're working on two easy problems, right? Like that, that means that you're not actually optimizing. If the times that you try to prove some theorem and you fail, if that happens 0% of the time, like you're not, you're not optimizing, you're doing something that's not optimal. So then you might say, hey, Ellenberg, if everybody gets that idea intuitively, why do you write these long books that have math in them? Like, what's the point? Well, I think what math can really bring to us, it's a unifying force. It takes things that we understand intuitively in many different domains and says, hey, you think of those as five different thoughts you had, but they're actually the same thought. They're versions of the same thought, the same underlying mathematical principle that you have observed and expressed and understood in five different contexts. Now, maybe there's like 10 more different contexts you didn't think of in the same way. You know, you didn't think of when should I get to the airport and what kind of theorem should I try to prove and when should I bluff as instances of the same principle, but actually they are under the skin. So that's what it's about, like showing people that math is everywhere. Yeah, I think that a lot of people it's very customary for people to say, I'm bad at math, I don't like math, or I do like it, but it was too hard for me. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't do math. I think mathematical reasoning is as fundamental to what our brains are doing all the time as, as talking, like as language, you know, as prediction, as emotions, like all these things are part of what make us human. But we don't often call it that. We don't often recognize it as that. And that's partly because for reasons which are actually pretty good reasons, you know, the way we teach math is very formal. It's very abstract. And so I think sometimes we think, oh, it's not math unless it looks like what was in school. And I try to write books where it doesn't look that much like what happened in school and explain why it is the same. To me, it's the same, right? I like look at an algebra textbook and I'm like, that's the same thing as what I write about in my book, but it doesn't look the same. And I do like what you mentioned about noticing that things are different are actually the same. Yes. And this is Poincaré's great slogan, the great geometer on Poincaré, you know, who writes that mathematics is the art of giving the same name to different things. That dude is so quotable. No, I mean, it's all I can do. I had to like restrain myself from just like including, I mean, I, there already are a lot of quotes from him because he was like such a great aphorist, but this is one of his absolute best. It's so deep because it sounds like a big mistake. Like, wait, you shouldn't give the same name to different things. They're different. But if you actually approach life that way, you would be completely paralyzed. You'd be helpless unless you can understand that there's things that have an affinity for each other that are in some ways the same that, that you're going to give the same name. Okay, I'll give you an example. In poker, I can't believe I'm trying to make a poker example. You tell me if I completely screwed up. Okay, Jennifer, if you're reasoning about some kind of hand that involves like a two, a five, and a six of hearts, and somebody else is like, I'm trying to reason about a hand that has a two, a five, and a six of spades, those are not the same hand. Those are not literally the same cards. 
But some reasoning you have of whether you're going to get a straight, it doesn't matter, right? What suit it is. Please tell me I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Like you're chunking things that look... Chunking is a great word, yeah. Yeah, and, and people definitely are doing that in poker. And I just think it's really non-coincidental that you picked five deuce off for this episode at the beginning. And then you give us a flop with a five and a deuce on it. <laughs> now you have two pair. I mean, that's a great hand. Oh, I was primed. I was primed. You were definitely primed. Absolutely. Wow. Five, deuce, um, six. Now, by the way, speaking of people you quote on the book, and you know, you quote Poncare quite often, and there's a couple other favorites, but I did notice that the first person you quote in your book is a black woman from Hidden Figures, and that throughout your book, there does seem to be many mentions of scientists, female scientists, people of color. Is that something that's important to you in your work? I was wondering if that was conscious and how that ties into your work. It's conscious, but it's also not very hard. Yeah. It would be harder if I were writing this book at the time that Poincaré was writing, when math had by and large not done very much to change like who was allowed to be called a mathematician and who was who were writing things that got published that I can read, right? So now it's 2021. So there is a broader range of people who have done and said like really amazing things that I can write about. I mean, I didn't know about Hilda Hudson, for instance, who I write about in the book, who together with Ronald Ross kind of creates the basis of these, you know, disease models, these epidemic growth models that we have all been obsessed with over the last year. And actually, I even the mathematicians I talked to, men and women, I think did not really know about her. So it was pretty cool to like bring that figure back from obscurity. But looks like somebody like Rita Dove, like, look, she is like a super famous poet who wrote like a famous poem called Geometry, a poem I, did, I, actually, I actually didn't know this until I started writing the book, but you don't have to contort yourself to see why that fits in. It sort of fit in so exactly with what I was trying to say. So I would say as a writer, like, yes, I'm conscious of it. But also I would say if other people are trying to do projects like this, it's just not that hard to do. If your mind is open to it, there's like millions of people who have written and done like things that are relevant to the kind of project I do. And I'm sure the kinds of projects that other people do too, if they're writing about poker or chess or thinking smart or what have you. I agree. And I, um, I think that, of course, like you mentioned, when you go back to Poncaré's time, even contributions made might not have been recorded. So it certainly is difficult, but that's part of the reason why it's so important to preserve that in current books as well. I love both books, How Not to Be Wrong, and then also Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and everything else. And you can also find Jordan on JS Ellenberg for your next uh, viral tweet. And yeah, thank you so much for, for joining me, Jordan. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Jennifer. This was super interesting, and I learned a ton. Oh, good. I'm glad you learned something, too. I learned so much from your books, and I hope that uh, everybody um, checks them out, as I do believe that you'll find many of the themes in them everywhere. Five deuce off. Jordan has taken that cell in the grig. Five deuce off. I'm so glad that you picked one that I haven't used yet because if you had picked one that I used, I wouldn't have been able to like use you to click off a square. Wait, why do you say five deuce off? What does the off mean? Um, oh, that it means not suited. So the 169 hands covered include um, suited hands and off suit hands. So if you picked oh, like okay. five deuce, both with spades or something, that would fit into the suited category, which is always better hands because it's much more likely for them to make flushes, which is like a super strong hand. So even like a five deuce, if it's suited, has some great properties that a five deuce off doesn't. So you picked a really bad hand, <laughs> which is great because then later in the conversation, five deuce six on the flop came up just 
totally coincidentally. So there it is, five deuce off and Jordan Ellenberg. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.